and it didn't work. Or that my willpower will change the way I ate or my handwriting or my intelligence or something like that. And the problem was that my willpower alone was insane because that's what I had taught. It's, you know, if you're taught insanity, that's what you know. And we somehow think that we're born with this mind that is automatically developed. It is not true. Human beings are born with this unique quality called capacity. We have the capacity to energize God's power, to learn how to do it, to be able to choose the way we live our life and so forth. We're born with that capacity. But it's like the capacity to develop a physical attribute. For instance, somebody could have the natural capacity to be a great tennis player. But you can't be a great tennis player unless you learn how to play tennis. You can't say, you know what, I am the world's greatest tennis player. Well, where have you played? I never played it. You know. I mean, I just, you know, I don't even own a racket. Yeah. But I have the capacity to be the world's greatest tennis player. I went to some physiologist, you see, and he gave me all these tests. And from these tests, he was able to figure out with some incredible computer and this great scientific knowledge that I have the capacity to be the world's greatest tennis player. Well, that and a dime won't even get me a phone call in California, you know, 20 cents. So the capacity to be a powerful person is not enough. It's got to be learned. You've got to learn how to do what you have the capacity to do. And we're all born with this capacity to control our lives. But so what do we do? We, we, we have teachers called parents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors next door, the kid down the block, teachers at school, kids you go to school with. And until you're five or six years old, you have these teachers. Now we have visual teachers on television. So little kids get to watch television. And they see the, you know, the cat running after the mouse. And the mouse is so funny that the cat gets blown up in the air or something. So a little kid, they all starts computing. And he said, the way you feel good is hurt other people. And uh, he sees things going on around him. And that capacity is not developed in its natural order. It's developed in a distorted way, in a deviation. And what happens is as the capacity is developed, we get to feel bad. God has given each human being a unique way of dealing with life. Good things feel good, that's why they're called good. Bad things feel bad, that's why they're called bad. And we just have very simple feelings. You know, uh, mad, sad, glad, you know, things like that. Those are basic feelings. And we have this, I, I really put it down into three feelings, up, down, and in the middle. And the middle is where I want to be. Up and down are appropriate when certain things happen, events in reality happen. Somebody dies, I get down, I feel sad. You know, uh, I win a, a lottery and make a lot of money, I feel good. And I go up. But most of the time, my life is here, and that's where life is meant to be. But what we do, we think about things that aren't happening or might happen or could happen or should happen, and down we go. And then we say, gee, we're down, I don't want to be down, so we create some mechanical means to get up. And when you get up, what do you do? You gotta either get up more or go down. So you're constantly in some kind of a behavior that you have learned to adapt to life to keep you up or down. Since your basic idea is down, you always go up knowing you're gonna come down. 
but nobody just stays in the middle because we haven't learned it. We haven't had teachers around us to develop us in this appropriate way, to develop this capacity. Now we find ourselves at 20, 30, 40, whatever it is, in our age, and we look at ourselves and we say, gee, something's the matter with me. I mean, everybody is going down this way, and I'm going down that way. Oh, there's a few other people going down this way, but those people just seem as crazy as I am, and they're as unhappy as I am. But there's people going that way, and they just seem to be going along and enjoying life. And things aren't working for me. But I don't feel comfortable going that way, we say. I don't feel like it. And if I waited to feel like it, I'd, I'd be probably weigh about 500 pounds by now if I was still alive. I can't afford to wait to feel like it. I have a brain. And fortunately, my brain had not deteriorated to that extent where I wasn't able to see what I was able to see. And even though I came into OA and everybody told me, oh, crazy is in. You know, we're here, we're all crazy people. We're sick. We're different. And we're not supposed to be anything else. I remember one person coming up to me and saying to me, well, aren't you just like the rest of us? And I said, sure. And she said, oh, I'm glad that you're a crazy person just like us. I said, no, I'm not. I mean, you want to be crazy, fine, but I don't want to be crazy. I didn't know I was crazy until one day I found myself in a mental institution and had a moment's lucidity, and there was nothing as terrible as knowing you're crazy. And there was that one moment where I looked at myself and realized not only was I crazy, but I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't stop. And it took me a long time after that when I got out to finally come to OA and see what there was here. And yet, in the beginning, I had other people who were just like me telling me, oh, all we are is a club of crazy people who encourages craziness. The difference is you don't feel different. They, I always thought I was different, and now I felt so good that there were other people around me who were just as insane as I was. And instead of trying to be like the other people, I just said, oh, what are these? I can relax. I don't have to feel bad about myself because whatever I feel, I'm supposed to be this way. After all, my mother did this, my father did that, and so forth. And I finally when I went that way for several years until I began to read this book, and I saw this part here. It said, I'm supposed to be powerful. And all I ever heard was people say, but I'm powerless over food, and my life is unmanageable. And as if that was the password. You know, in order to get in, you need to get the password. It's like it's an anonymous meeting. It's a secret meeting. And you knock on the door. And instead of saying, Joe sent me, you say, I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. <laughs> oh, you're one of us. You know. And I can go to any city in the world and just knock on the door and say, I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. Hey, come on in. You know. Here's another asshole just like us. You know. <laughs> now, if I come to the meeting and knock on the door and says, I'm powerful. My life is very well managed by God. What the hell are you doing here? You know. That's a normal person. We don't want him in here. He threatens our program. Because we're here to share recovery, not debilitation. We're not a club of, of invalids or uh, uh, people who are sick who encourage everybody else to uh, gather together in an organization of, of sick people in camaraderie or something like that. Somebody shared last night about handicap. It's true. We have a handicap, but we don't have to have it anymore. It's like, a, you know, a golfer has a handicap, but he can get rid of that by getting better and better. But we come in with a handicap. We practice a little bit more and more. We get saner and saner until we get to the point where we're powerful. 
Our first step tells us that we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable, but it tells us that as the prerequisite or the beginning of getting into the program. After we understand that our problem is powerlessness and the purpose of the steps is to become powerful, and then we say, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that. So our first step tells us we admitted we were powerless and our lives had become unmanageable. But it is not a red badge of courage. It is not a, a, a scarlet sign on our, on our uh, forehead. It is not a tattoo on our arm or a, a billboard we wear on our backs that I am powerless and my life is unmanageable. We're better off putting something down there that says I am powerful because the first step is really, the sole purpose of the first step is how are you going to get well if you don't acknowledge that you're sick? How are you going to get recovered if you don't have something to recover from? And what we have to recover from is powerlessness and unmanageability. And we're supposed to become powerful. People who are on the program for, for years who still go around and say, my life is, I'm powerless of the food and my life is unmanageable. What are they doing? What have they been doing all this time? And I think they've just been reciting this because nobody told them that they're not powerless anymore. It's like people say to me someday, well, I've been around for a long time and I hope that I can recover. I say, you know what? You may be recovered and not even know it. Because how are you going to be recovered if you think recovery means perfection? If recovery means the new beginning, haven't you begun? Therefore, aren't you recovered? And somehow it doesn't feel that way. We, we come in and say, see, how can I? I haven't lost all my weight and I haven't really worked all the steps wonderfully and I'm still doing this and doing that. How can I say I'm recovered? But what'd you expect? Who says it was going to be any different? It doesn't tell us that at all. All the program promises us is we're going to begin to think and feel differently. Haven't you begun to think and feel differently? Then you're recovered. And if you've done this through the steps, it just seems too easy, doesn't it? You know, it's like, oh, what's this guy telling me? You know, here I am struggling. I still got the same jerk I'm married to and the same rotten kids and my parents are just as crazy as ever. Nothing's changed. I hardly lost any weight. And he's saying I'm recovered. I want more. Well, you can have more. It gets better and better if you want it. But you, re you recovered her and recovered her, you know. <laughs> so our first step is really an acknowledgement of a position so that we can move on from there. <coughs> then our second step tells us, well, if we say, if we define our position that we find ourselves in, I hate to use that term, find ourselves, but if we have that position in which we're able to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I really recognize for the first time my problem is I'm powerless. I can't stop. I can't, I'm like a, a, a victim of life. It just runs me. My past runs me. My whole life runs me. How can I stop it? And they'll say, well, what would you call a person who is not able to run their life? We lock people up like that. They're called crazy. They're insane. And the only reason you're not locked up is because your behavior doesn't affect other people too much. But if you were, instead of eating, you were stealing from stores and getting caught at it, if you were kleptomaniac, you know, you'd go to prison or you'd go to a mental institution. I have a woman I sponsor who's a kleptomaniac. And she has to call me up 
at least four or five times a day. That's, you know, that's what we do. She just calls me up whenever she feels like stealing. Well, it's four or five times a day in the beginning. And uh, now it's a week. Since I can't be always be there for her, we have a whole list of people that she can call. And she calls people four or five times a day. This is going on for several months now. Just a call. And uh, she don't promise she's not going to steal. And if she does steal, it, she's, you know, she's encouraged. She says, well, look at, you know, it's been so many days. I used to do it every day. Now it's so many days. Now it's weeks. Now it's months and so forth. And uh, that's how she symptomizes. But she gets caught. She's going to go to jail. She knows that. You know, she's been caught four times already and, and been to, uh, to court four times. Next time she goes to jail. And she's got little kids. And do you think the, th the thought of losing those children stop her? Do you think the thought and fear of going to prison stops her? Nothing can stop her any more than it stops us from eating. She can't stop because she hasn't yet gotten to the power. She hasn't yet been able to energize it, but she's working on it. Is she recovered? You're damn right she is because she's gone through the steps and she's doing better and better. Her symptom, however, is worse than ours because it's very antisocial. Nobody ever arrests us for, for overeating. We never get fired from jobs unless we're just tremendously overweight. You know, we think that people shun, you know, men, uh, people of the opposite sex shun us because we don't look good. There are just as many crazy people, men around who like fat women as there are men who like thin women. Crazy people like crazy people, you know. Do you think a crazy guy is going to go ahead and, and meet some nice, sane, thin lady? No way. They don't want that. They would like a nice, crazy person. Crazier the better. Makes them look saner. <laughs> so the first step tells us we're crazy, in effect. And right away, the second step gives us the promise of the program. It says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What sanity? Being powerful. A lot of people read that second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to abstinence. That's all. That's all they want. I just want to be thin. I'll take care of everything else. You know, everything's going to fall into place if I'm thin. And then you get thin and I say, well, I just want to be a little thinner or a little richer or a little taller or shorter or something like that, you know. So the second step really gives us the promise of the program. First three steps, very simple. First three steps are we admit, we believe, we decide. Admit, believe, and decide. What are those? Are those behavioral changes? I hear people say, I do the first three steps every day. I wonder why. Maybe if they did it once and for all, they wouldn't have to do it every day. Because one who is powerful doesn't have to constantly remind themselves of it. I don't have to tell myself every morning, Bill, go brush your teeth. You know, you're powerful over your teeth now. <laughs> go start your car. Powerful as I am, I don't put gas in it, ain't gonna run. You know, it doesn't make any difference. So the first three steps are what we call in psychology or psychological terms, uh, acts of cognition. They're thinking acts. Well, what we're asked to do in the beginning is a very rare quality for us. It's called thinking. And thinking a little differently. 
And how do we get to do this when we've never learned to do it? Well, it tells us in the big book that we're supposed to sit down with a person as we go through these steps, and the first three steps, and do it with a person. Hopefully, this is the... Um, this step is done with a, quote, sponsor who has done these things and is uh, well recovered and is able to sit down with you and have a communication. The first three steps are done in a dialogue. And the way I do first three steps with somebody is I absolutely sit down with them. Just like I talk to you, I talk to them. We share. I say, do you understand that? What don't you understand? You know, this is your shot in life. This is like a class we're going through. What is it that you don't know? You don't understand God? You don't like, uh, you don't believe in God? Fine, let's talk about that. You don't know what power is? Let's talk about that. We sit down and we sit down for hours talking about the, what I call the attitude that knowing what it is that they want and what we have to offer them. And those first three steps, we just talk about it. So they've got it clear in their mind. And they'll say that, uh, uh, they're an atheist. Well, I'm not one, and I, I, I don't say it's wrong or anything, but I'm just not a person that can, that believes in this making the group the higher power. I just don't think that works, and I know people say that, and they do it sometimes, and uh, uh, maybe it serves a little bit to get them out of themselves. I just can't understand how somebody could function in this program without an, uh, an essence of God in their lives. And the God does not have to be a religious God, and therefore I believe that uh, atheists can participate in this. As a matter of fact, I find it a lot easier to deal with an atheist than an agnostic. At least an atheist has used their brain to figure out God doesn't exist. Or, uh, an agnostic's a coward. Really an atheist who just in case, you know, just uh, might be. <laughs> And uh, maybe I should just go to, uh, you know, atheists or people who wear uh, Jewish stars and, and, and crosses and, and, uh, and medals, you know, uh, sprinkled by the Pope or something like that. I mean, they want to take a cover all corners. And uh, they read Buddhist literature and, uh, and uh, Hindu poems or whatever, just in case God exists and they're in the wrong religion. They want to make sure. But... Um, uh, like somebody who binges, I'd rather deal with an atheist because you can talk to an atheist because they believe they figured out, and I think that if they figured out that he doesn't exist, I can help them figure out that he does exist. And it's uh, and it's whatever they want to call God. And I usually ask them, "Do you believe that love exists?" Yes. And do you believe that there are uh, there is courage that exists in people? Yes, and there is compassion that exists in people, and there's caring that exists in people, well, and, and there is serenity that exists in people, and wisdom that exists in people, and all these things, of course, exist in some people. And I say, if those things exist, and they exist in the face of very often a lack of, uh, of examples of that in people, are you willing to call, could we call that, for want of another name, a power, another power? And if that exists, then the power exists. And if we can call that power, higher power, God, whatever you want, fine. But there is a power, and I know that power exists because I have seen people who have changed, uh, and they've never 
learn how to change. I have experienced in my own life never having been taught love, and never having experienced compassion, and never having uh, learned about courage or exemplified it, showing not only no wisdom but counter-wisdom, stupidity, um, and yet I have been able to achieve these things. Where did it come from? I mean, where is, where is the, the part of my body that can say that's wisdom and that's love and that's compassion and that's courage? Point it out to me. I mean, is it a single cell? Is it sub-microscopic? I'll even accept that. But it doesn't exist in any form. Where is thought? Where is feeling? Describe it to me. Like somebody will say, you know, I really feel angry. I'll say, describe it. Tell me the feeling. So, is it a warm glow? And what is it? And how does it start? Where is the, that part, that little minuscule little part of the, the organ, organ that you are, where it starts? There isn't there. It's an intangible. It's a, it's a thing that's not a thing. It's a happening that's not a happening. Uh, love and compassion and caring and, and the ability to do. Where does one get that ability that uh, to stop and help somebody? Where does it come from? Except it, it, is, it is what it is. It is something else. That's all. And I'd like to think, I think, that that something else comes from a power, a source, a creator. And I believe that creator is God to me. You can call it anything you want, but it's God to me. And so I know that these people whose stories were in the big book, the old timers in AA that came along long before any of us did, those people who had tried so hard all their lives to change, who, as you read their stories and, and feel their pain and tears as they cried to want to change and couldn't, and of all the people who tried to help them, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, ministers, uh, um, uh, uh, parents, wives, children, all the loving care that they had and encouragement to change, and they didn't change. And all the threats, people who were in prison and who were going to be put in prison for the rest of their lives. I heard a story about a man uh, who... Uh, came from a nice family in Alabama and everything, and he got in with a crowd at school, and he, they held up a store and killed somebody, and he was um, the driver of the car, and he was sent to prison for murder, and it was commuted to life imprisonment. And there he was, a young fellow uh, who had lived, you know, in a drug culture and um, stealing and doing things, and now somebody was dead, and he was in prison for the rest of his life. And he spent something like seven or eight years there until his uh, sentence was commuted and he was given a pardon. Why? What changed him? Where did he find this stuff? In prison? Did he find people there who cared about him? Did he find love and understanding? Did he find teachers to teach him? No. And yet he learned. There is something out there that, that, that comes from out there and to in within us. And a circle is completed through the act of prayer. It comes from God to us and from us to God. So there is a power that I have seen in these people's stories and in my awareness of other people, seeing them and hearing their stories, unless they all lie to me. A power that exists beyond one's willpower and beyond the combined efforts of everybody else. 
loving and paid for and whatever. So there had to be a God, a power. And I believed that this power could restore me to my natural state because it had restored others, that's all. If these people in this big book can change, I can change. If I can change, you can change. If you can change, the newcomer can change. And the change is not how much I weigh. I mean, nobody knows me when I came in here. I was here before all of you. I could be lying to you. What difference does it make how much weight I lost? It is not how much weight I lost. It is what I am. I am not what I lost. I am what I'm still here with. <laughs> My problem when I lost weight was I took me along. I got rid of that person. I am now a new person. It is this person that you see. It is not me in comparison to the way I, I weighed. It is me in comparison to the way I was. And the only way you know I was the way I was is not just by my sharing with you, but you will find out soon enough how true that is. You sit down with old-timers in AA, and you say, you know, they tell me a story about what they did. I can hardly believe it. He's such a nice guy. That's the point. He is such a nice guy. Who cares what he was? Maybe he's lying to you what he was. The point isn't that you want to be what he was. The point is you can be what he is. The point is, you can be up here and I can be there just as easy if you want to. Because all we have to do is say, gee, I'd like to get up in front of people and talk. It must be nice to get up there and talk to a lot of people and have people come around and pay money to hear you speak. And I tell you, it is, it is nice. It's nice, but you can do it too. You can get up at any meeting and you've got a captive audience. They have a choice of listening to your bullshit or going home to their husbands. <laughs> <laughs> Given that option, you know what they're going to choose. <laughs> and after a while, they stay and they'll say, gee, you know so-and-so is speaking here, and I heard her speak before. And she, I really like her. I really, you say, I like what she says. It's not you like what she says. What it is is you feel good when you hear her or him. You just feel good. I go away from that meeting, I feel good. We call it inspiration or motivation or other names. But really, we just feel good. We don't want to admit we feel good, so we say we're inspired. God forbid we should feel good. You know. So what we do is we feel good. And then all of a sudden, six months later, somebody asks you to share, or you're at a meeting and you'll get up and share a little bit for the first time maybe. And some newcomer will come by and say, you know, I heard you speak. I really felt good hearing you. It really helped me. So I can help somebody feel good? What's the difference whether it's one person who comes up to you or hundreds of people? It doesn't make any difference. Because when I leave here and go home tomorrow, I get on a plane, you ain't with me. And all of you loving me and thinking I'm terrific doesn't get me a window seat without a reservation, let me tell you. I sit on the aisle and I, I say, how come my travel agent didn't get me a window seat when I told him? You know, don't they know who I am? I don't even get to sit in business class. You know, like I go cheapest way. And that's all there is to it. I used to go first class, I paid a difference, you know. I like to go first class, it made me feel good. Now I got so expensive, I can't even do that. And then I find out that since I lost the weight, you know, the regular seats are, are as big as the first class seats used to be when I was heavy. Okay. <laughs> so, 
And since I don't particularly care, the food doesn't make much difference to me anymore, you know, from the first-class food to the coach food. It's all terrible. So um, uh, I don't care. But the point is that you can be this way, too. You can share and give, and somebody else will say, sometimes the person will say, well, how much weight did you lose? You want to know that. And you know that you haven't gotten the message across. Because as, as soon as they ask how much weight you lose, they're saying, I don't know whether I want to judge you until I find out how much weight you lost. And what they are is judging whether they should listen to you and, and whether they should feel good. And if you say, oh, I lost 500 pounds. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boy, do I really feel good. I only have 300 to lose. Yeah. I lost 500 pounds. I met a fellow in St. Louis last year, a lovely young guy, about 25 years old, and he was telling me, took me aside and said, you know, Bill, I read your book, and I heard you speak, and I'll tell you the truth, I can't relate to you. He says, you lost 75 pounds. He weighed, um, at that time, he weighed, uh, um, I'm trying to remember, 600, uh, 575 pounds, I think, something like that. And he had already lost 175 pounds. And he says, I can't relate to you. And I said, <coughs> but I can relate to you. He says, how can you relate to me? I says, because you you're what I was going to be. And I know your pain. He says, how can you know my pain? I says, pain's pain. What's the difference? Well, he couldn't understand it. And I understood he couldn't understand it. And I put him in touch with somebody I know in, in New York who lost 500 pounds. And this guy's 25 years old. He had never been able to get behind the wheel of a car to drive it. There wasn't enough room. So he never drove a car. He obviously had never been with a woman. There are a lot of sick OA people around, but not that sick, you know. And uh, so he hadn't been able to be with an OA with any woman, you know. But, uh, I think if he stuck around OA long enough, it would have happened, you know. There are a lot of there are a lot of compassionate hearts around, and um, uh, he uh, uh, he hadn't been able to work. He never had a job because nobody would hire him at uh, you know seven hundred and something pounds. And he had just two weeks before attempted to commit suicide for the second or third time and come out of a hospital. Been eating dis that's how he lost 175 pounds, was in an eating disorder hospital, which was just another forced prison. Uh, and when I, he wrote to me, when, after I put him in touch with this fellow from New York, he said it was his first, the first joyous Christmas and New Year's he ever had in his life because he now knew it was possible. And he now knew that happiness was available to him. And no matter what I had said to him, all I was able to do was put him on to somebody. And i got to tell you, I know this fellow who lost over 500 pounds in New York. And he once came to one of my meetings and he said, uh, I said, would you like to share? He says, I'll share under one condition. You don't tell anybody how much weight I lost. Because I don't want to be judged by how much weight I lost. And he never mentioned how much weight he lost. And you probably will never hear about this guy because he's out there just living his life, having a wonderful time. You know, goes to meetings and he, he doesn't impress people by ever telling them how much weight he lost. He says he lost a lot of weight. Because that's what we, do, we are. We don't want to be judged by that. I don't want to be judged by how much weight I lost or how much abstinence I have. I am me. And I am a composite of a lot of things. I am the way I speak and the way I share and the way I care or don't, as the case may be. And I want you to deal with me as you would deal with everybody else. What do I feel when I'm with this person? That's all. If you feel good, then be around them. And if you end up feeling uh, empty and remorseful after you, you leave the person, don't be around them. 
And if you want what they have, then do what they did. And I want what these people had. And it wasn't not drinking, because I never drank. And it wasn't losing X number of pounds, because I had lost my weight. What I wanted was to feel good. I wanted peace. I an atheist uh, uh, did so much so well in the program and after a time she decided to uh, convert to my religion because she said that uh, she felt that I epitomized my religion so well she wanted that too and no matter how much I tried to talk her out of it which I did uh, she wanted it of course that's balanced out by a fellow I sponsor who's also very wonderful who is my religion who converted to another one so uh, shows you how good I am in <laughs> impossibilizing, you know. I, I think that, um, for me, I have found at this stage in my life, I've turned back to uh, my religion, uh, which I had turned away from as a child, because as I turned away from God, the religion symbolized it. And I think the religion, what I saw of the religion in my mind was, this is what you got to do. And there was no reason for what I got to do. And I resented it. I was a passive-aggressive person. And my way of dealing with being told what to do was to fail at it or turn my back at it. And I turned my back, and I think most of us have, uh, in many ways, turned our back on our religions. And I'm not here to preach about religions. I just found out, found in my life, that not having to reject those things anymore out of spite, I could look at it with a different eye. And I've read about religions and I read about them and I love to be able to quote from uh, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, from uh, uh, Buddhist and Hindu scriptures and, and Muslim scriptures. Uh, I find uh, all of them uh, useful and, and bring good feelings in my life and I found it was just fine to go back into my religion even though at another time I was thought of, thought of it as a cop-out. So uh, I find it, uh, for most people, that's what really happens after a period of time. They'll go for a long period of time, uh, you know, having no God or disbelief in God or anger at God, and then there's a program developed in their life to say, okay, I got God in my life, and I'm, quote, spiritual, but non-religious. And most of us, uh, and I have yet to find somebody around a long time who has not been turned back to their original religion, and I think it's a wonderful compliment to our program that it, uh, it really is, it supports whatever religion we're in. The third step was the hardest, and I was told when I went through the third step uh, that uh, this is the step that separates those in the program. It is the step in which um, we learn to uh, set on a path of life. I thought that the third step was epitomized in those cliches, let go, let God. And I was asked, how do you do it? By this man who took me through the steps. Show me how you let go and let God. Well, I, I don't know. You know, I uh, pray. And I said, he says, fine, you know, you pray. Well, what does that mean? Does that let go? How do you do it? And uh, when we really boiled down to it, I didn't know how to let go. He said, what the third step says is is that we can do only one thing at this stage of our lives is to make a decision 
We made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. In steps four through nine is the way we seek out God's will. Steps four through nine are the steps in which we seek out God's will. Steps 10, 11, and 12 are the steps in which we carry out God's will on a daily basis. But steps three, step three is not the step in which you turn your will and life over to the care of God, because the truth is we don't do it. We would like to do it, perhaps, at this point. We make a decision to do it. And the way we do it is going through steps four through nine. That's how we turn our will and life over to God. And that was fine to a point, but it's God as you understand him, and I didn't understand God. And it took me a long time to understand God, because God was a painful God, very unfair God, and I didn't even know if he was a very powerful God. I mean, if God was so powerful, how come he didn't do this and he didn't do that? And I hear people say, Oh, God comes into our lives, and uh, uh, what he does is I needed a car, and he got me a car, and I prayed for a job, and I got a job. Uh, I prayed to get a divorce, I got a divorce, you know, and all these things I prayed for. Uh, and I, my answer to that is, uh, you mean to say all you had to do was pray to God for a car, and he got a car? That's terrific. What model? You know, do I have to pray for that model, or can I pray for a different model? And how did you pray? I mean, do you, do you kneel, stand up, lie down? Is there? I want to do it. And which city did you do it in? I mean, I want to go. What church? I want to go there, because God must reside there. Because I've been asking all my life, and I never got it. Not only did I ask for a new car, but my old car would break down, and I wouldn't even get a new car. You know, and the buses would go on strike, and whatever it is. You know, the more I prayed, the less I seemed to get. And what magic is it of yours? And then, of course, comes the question, if God is so wonderful in giving you a new car, i got a neighbor that has leukemia. Uh, what, how come God's going around giving people new cars, especially foreign models, and not taking care of uh, my neighbor next door that has leukemia? Well, how about the kid I read about who uh, uh, was uh, raped by some uh, teacher at school, or uh, uh, my friend across the street who worked so hard all his life and was one of the nicest men I ever met, uh, and had a wife and two little children, and, and in a period of a few months got cancer and died. I said, was God so busy handing out foreign model cars he couldn't take care of that? And what about... Um, uh, you know, people in Ethiopia, uh, is there something about them? God doesn't exist south of the equator? Or is there something about uh, the people uh, who died in concentration? Where was God then? I mean, is God passing out Volkswagens at that time? What is there about this? And I think the truth is God doesn't do those things. God doesn't intercede in our lives in that way. Not only that, but if he interceded once, then we become meaningless. See, we could have had it that way. If Eve would have kept her hands off the apple, <laughs> we could have stayed in the Garden of Eden. We would never have to worry about anything. You know, the Bible says we wouldn't wear, even wear clothes. So nobody, everybody would look ugly. You know, and we wouldn't have to, you, just think of it. 
you wouldn't have to worry about what size you wore because nobody would wear any size. See, and life would be terrific. They would, we wouldn't have to work. Everything would be given to us. We could have had it that way. But God said to us, as mankind left the Garden of Eden, he said, I set before you the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of life and death. Choose life. I don't think leaving the Garden of Eden was a punishment. I think it was an expression of our uniqueness in God's image. What good are we in God's physical image? And I don't think that's what was meant by it. We are in God's powerful image. We have his power. We have we have the quality that no creature has. No creature but mankind has compassion. No creature except mankind will do what a human being will do. Only we have the secret of life because we know that death is waiting on us. Nobody else, no living life form exists, knows it's going to die except human beings. And therefore, each day becomes valuable. We have this unique quality because God gave us the opportunity to choose life. He doesn't choose it for us. He is eminently fair. He sets in course a motion of things happening, of oceans that ripple and cause tidal waves, of winds that blow and cause typhoons and hurricanes, of, of, uh, of diseases that spread and kill insects so that other forms of life can eat it and also kills people. He sets forth all these things and he says, here, part of me, human beings, choose life. Do with it as you will. So God doesn't exist in the form of causing pain. As an eminent philosopher once said, God doesn't send us the problem. He just gives us the solution. God doesn't like these terrible things to happen, but he will not intercede. How do I know he doesn't intercede? Because then life is meaningless if God intercedes even in one case, even in one instance. And the only instances that God is, is believed to intercede is what we call miracles. Miracles happen as examples to mankind. And I believe that miracles happen but not because somebody asked for it more than anybody else or somebody deserves it more than anybody else, but as a reminder to mankind that God lives. So every once in a while a miracle exists. And then he says, I'm busy. I'm so busy creating these miracles, these ladies of Fatima and the, these uh, cripples that walk and things like that. I'm so busy. He says, I'm going to give up on that kind of a miracle. I'm going to give everybody the opportunity to be a miracle. And so he gave us a way of life to become miracles. And we have miracles in this program. And every one of us, in our own little way, is a miracle. We have created a new world for ourselves. That's a miracle. I know it's difficult. A very famous uh, writer who uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust and concentration camps was asked that uh, how did people in the concentration camps deal with God? And he said, like any place else, some lost faith, some got more faith. He said, and I know that being a survivor of the concentration camps and seeing what was on there, 
makes faith in God difficult, but it makes faith in man impossible. And I would rather trust my faith in God than my faith in man. It's interesting how I'll go to a supermarket someday and there'll be somebody passing around a petition for me to sign. And I read those petitions and they're to the president and to the governor and I'll say, do you really think that you're going to change the president's mind by petitioning the president? And they'll say, no, but we got to do it. My answer to you then is, how different is that than we petition God if he doesn't do it? Is it any different? And I think we've got a better chance. Because in the very act of petitioning the president to change something, how does the petitioner feel? feels good. He's doing something. He feels good. And when we petition God, which is what a prayer is, a petition to God, to enter into our lives, what happens? God answers our prayer. He enters into our lives. Oh, he doesn't change the election or anything like that anymore than the president does. But he would get to feel good. He says, petition me. You want courage? I'll give you courage. You want strength? I'll give you strength. You want serenity? I'll give you serenity. All you got to do is ask for it. But you ask for a new car, it isn't going to come. You ask for a cure of an illness, it's not going to happen. You ask for the dead to be reborn, it won't happen in your lifetime. But the memories of them can be cherished. This is the God I understand, a God who, who gives love instead of hate, who can take a child like me, a battered child who lived in, in a home devoid of love, who went to school for retarded children because I was diagnosed retarded, who couldn't speak until he was 18 years old without a lisp and a stutter and couldn't even express himself in a sentence. I never said more than a sentence at a time in my whole life until I was 18. Take that person and see what I am today. I'm, this is the God I understand. A God who, who gives love instead of hate. Who can take a child like me, a battered child, who lived in, in a home devoid of love. Who went to school for retarded children because I was diagnosed retarded. Who couldn't speak until he was 18 years old without a lisp and a stutter. And couldn't even express himself in a sentence. I never said more than a sentence at a time in my whole life until I was 18. Take that person and see what I am today. I'm a miracle. I look back at that and I say, how the hell did I do it? How did I survive? And what amazes me is not the failures that we find in this program, but the successes. It amazes me when I listen to inventory after in inventory for almost 15 years, how the hell any of you survived the lives you led, the pain you felt, <laughs> it's not a question that you're 50 or 100 or 200 pounds. I'm surprised you're alive. I'm surprised you don't weigh 500 pounds or 700 pounds. I'm surprised that you can even sit down in a chair long enough and not go crazy. Hey, you can go back to the lives that you've led and survive it. Now you have the intelligence and the foresight and courage to even come to your first meeting. I'm surprised that the success is not the failure. And I see that in our lives, in our programs. We have to look to this God-given quality that will cure it all. And I believe that love of another human being will cure anything. That given love, as I was given by people in this program, by a, a crazy old coot of a guy, an ex-drunk in New York who took me through these steps, um, who uh, didn't know me and never saw me again in his life, 
and we just communicated with each other who uh, went senile after that and that guy showed me and gave me days and gave me time of himself and love that I never knew in my life because he knew that he got to feel a certain way that I can sit with people who I never would have thought about or ever, ever fathomed being with and get so much out of them I have a dear friend that I mentioned many times before been sharing with people who is a psychiatrist in Germany who I'll be visiting in June and uh, uh, we have an incredible love and caring for each other who would have ever thought that I would love a German who was in the army in World War II and I would love him better than any man I know where'd that come from how could that happen who would have thought that he came to my house in, in Los Angeles. He was visiting the United States, and my younger daughter asked and said, were you in the army during the war? And she, he said, yes. He said, she said, did you hate Jews? He said, yes, I was taught to hate Jews. She said, do you hate us? And she said, he said, no, I don't hate you. I love you, and I love your father. He's my dearest friend. And as I drove back to his car, I said, you know, that is greater than any miracle cure of cancer is the cure of people's minds that here you and I, worlds apart, you who have taught to learn and, and taught to hate me and I who was taught to hate you, we could love each other. We can transcend our history and create new people in ourselves and pass it on to our family, our children, and to other people. Where does that come from? Is that not more powerful and an expression of God's power than anything else? And can you compare that to losing 10 pounds? Where is our priorities to be able to learn to love people like that? And it's available to us all. That, to me, is more important in my life. I'll put back 100 pounds any time rather than lose that. And I know that if I don't lose that, I'll never put back 100 pounds. And having that ability is a miracle. In a very uh, famous... Uh, but biblical story which I like to uh, share on whenever I do this third step is the book of Job in the Bible and Job as you know was uh, had lost everything also God took everything away from Job his health his children died his wealth and Job goes and asks God why are you doing this to me you know he me who is just as, as good a person as they can ever be why are you doing this to me and God answers Job Two ways he says to him first why you why are you questioning me as to what you have lost do I owe you something and not only that he says look at what you still have you have birds that fly and and animals that graze and, and oceans that cover the earth and snow in the mountains look at what you still have left yes you've lost things but look at what I have created for you, the awesomeness of God's creation. And Job is cowed by it. He, he understands what God has given him. And then God says to him something else. He said, well, it's true that I have, that all these terrible things have happened to you, Job. He says, but the question is not, why have I done this to you, Job? The question is, now that these things have happened, not what am I going to do about it, Job, but what are you going to do about it? And in the beautiful play, 
written by uh, Archibald McLeish, where the analogy of the joke story is done. Uh, J.B., the joke figure, loses everything in a, a nuclear war. Everything is destroyed, and all that's left is him and his wife, people around. And his wife says to him, we cannot uh, look to anybody, but the only thing we can look to is our capacity to love. She says, the candles in the churches are out. The stars have gone out of the sky. Blow on the coal of the heart, and we'll see by and by. The world is a cold, unfair place in which everything they held precious was destroyed. But instead of looking to theology or psychology for the answers, they look inward to their own capacities to love. And then in their love for each other, they transcend the horror that happened in their lives. Love can cure anything. And where did they get that capacity to love? Where did they get the capacity to, to uh, trust and still understand God when all these terrible things happen? And I think that very nature, that very quality, was in fact God's answer to them and all mankind. And also, uh, I have read that Job story, by the way, over the years, many, many times, and shared it many retreats. And only a, a little while ago, when I was reading the story of Job over again, did I come to, I think, perhaps the most important lesson from the book of Job. Because if you know the story about Job, after all of this, Job gets back everything. And he gets his children and his wealth back and everything and his health and everything. And he has proved his faith and trust uh, to God. But he just doesn't get it back that way. In Job 42.10 it says, And the Lord changed the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. When Job stopped asking, Why me, God? And he just turned around and seek to help somebody else. Isn't it interesting, 3,000 years ago, the lesson of a person helping another person, you get everything you want. Instead of saying, why me, God, and what are you going to do, God, and what do I have to do, God, all he did was pray for his friends and he got everything back. And isn't that the lesson of our program, that when we stop, we stop worrying about ourselves and poor me and how is this going to happen to me and why should this happen to me? and we start looking to somebody else. When we get out of ourselves and into somebody else, it begins to change. The famous historian Charles Beard was asked, what is the greatest lesson you have learned from history? And he said, one single point. When it is dark enough outside, only then can you see the stars. And it's only then when things look worse that you can see what you still have left. I remember reading one day Somebody said facetiously, if we only had sunsets once every five years, we'd charge admission to get to see it. And there it is every day for us to look at. We can look at our life and say, gee, I don't have this and I don't have that. But look what we still have. We have free sunsets. We have free sunrises. I have a friend of mine that jogs through the cemetery where she lives up in Idaho every day. And she has... She found that's the only place that she can jog and enjoy and be at, be at peace with herself. And she gets to know every every wildflower that breaks through the snow. And for years she lived near that cemetery and hated the thought of living by a cemetery. And now these people there have become friends of hers. And the whole essence of it, and she can talk about the 
uh, the tracks of the wild animals that, uh, that uh, break through the fresh fallen snow. Or I say the wildflowers that break through and she once uh, sent me a letter and there was a little twig of a, of a wildflower that came through. Never saw that all her life. She was so busy worrying how fat she was and what she was eating, what she should eat, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and angry because she couldn't afford to live in a house further away from the cemetery or something like that. And now she's glad she lives there because she has that stretch of land and peace to do things. When it's dark enough outside, only then can you see the stars. It's only through our pain that we are able to come to this program and begin to change. And so we begin the path and the journey uh, to experience God's will. And how do we do that? We go through steps four through nine. When I get somebody and we've gone through the first three steps, I'll say, are you ready now to take the journey uh, to uh, turn your will and life over to God? And uh, I have yet to have somebody who went through the first three steps this way not be able to write an inventory. And the way I get people to write an inventory is to say, I don't give a damn whether you write it or not. I can kill us. I'm not here to change you or get you to do it. You want to do it, fine. And I'll say, what are you trying to do, talk me out of it? You know. And what they are, they're anxious to get it started. They want to get into it. They want to do it. They want to tear away the wreckage of the past, as the big book says. And so they sit down and write an inventory. Sometimes I sit right with them. They'll say, well, how long and when, you know, when should I do it? You can do it right now. I'll sit right here with you. And you can write an inventory now. And if they've been around the program a little while, I think, my God, I mean, you know, an inventory has got to be 40, 50 pages. And uh, we talk about how to deal with that because I won't read a 40, 50 page. I get to sleep after about the fourth chapter. You know, it's very boring. So um, I developed a method of uh, helping them. They can use that. They can use any method they want to write inventory. The point is <coughs> when they begin to understand what inventory is about, it takes out a totally different perspective. I was sharing with some people at breakfast about uh, inventories and how I deal with it. And I said, did you ever uh, get a transcript of your high school records for a job? You know, everybody's gotten a transcript at one time, I'm sure, or knows what it is if they would have gotten it. That's what an inventory is. It's a transcript of what you've gone through so you can see how you are the way you are. If you have gotten a class in the... If you have... Uh, if you have knowledge about some subject, how did you get it? You can say, oh, there it is. I studied geography, and I got a C in geography. And that's why I know some geography today. I don't know it very well, because I haven't worked at it much. You know, it's not part of my work. It's been X number of years since I've done it. But there it is. See? And nobody says to you, you're bad because you don't know about geography or you only know about it to the limit you are in. Or you're bad because you're typing. See, you can, I, if I got a D in typing. I could, and the only reason I took typing because I went with my cousin and he and I were the only boys in a class. See? So he got a D and I got an F. And the reason he got an F is because we used to type pornography and obscene notes and he got caught with it. You know, If I had caught with it, he would have gotten a D and I would have gotten an F. You know? But uh, your inventory is your transcript. It shows exactly what you've been taught 
to be the way you are. How come you eat this way? Well, hey, it's sort of class in eating, you know. <laughs> and it lasted about seven years. And it started with this experience when you were two years old. And in order to keep you quiet, they gave you a, a, a sweet back cookie or something like that. Or, and there it is, when you were four years old, your grandmother walked in and snuck to you some candy when your mother and father wouldn't let you have it. And there you are, and so on. That's, that's your class. You got an A in it. Of course, there's a class in common sense, you flunked, you know. <laughs> there's a class in relationships, you got a D minus. And there's a class in, in being a child, how to be a child to a parent. You know, you got about a, a C minus in that. Oh, there's a class in guilt, you got an A in that. And uh, there's a class in resentment, you got an A in that. And uh, here's the teachers you had in that subject, and here's how, that's what an inventory is, just like that. It is a methodology that we devise in this program so that you can see how you became the way you are. It is not a, an opportunity to blame anybody because I had Mrs. Jerk in the fourth grade who, who, who had a bad day uh, uh, with her family, and she called me a name, and ever since I have had trouble with that subject. Can I blame her? Because here I am years later and still have problems with that subject. And I, ha I have a, you know, my kids always say to me, oh, that teacher's terrible. <coughs> and I'll say to them, the teacher may be terrible, but the subject's important. And you're going to have to learn that subject and learn it well. And you can't use that, that teacher as an excuse when you're 40 years old or 30 years old or 20 years old or something like that. You can't use it when you go to college and you say, oh, I had this teacher and she was terrible and I cut class all the time because she wasn't interesting. And that's why I flunked that class. And I'll say, sorry, you can't come to this college. We want people that can transcend personalities and have the power to be able to learn a subject regardless of who's teaching it. So we take our inventory, and the idea of it is to see how we became the way we are. We are not, the purpose of inventory is not to change the past. It is not to place blame on you or anybody else. And the only reason you are to see how you've got to be the way you are is because how can you change what you are unless you assume responsibility for what you are? Well, these may be the teachers. You're the student. And you've long since ceased to be going to school. And you have had always the ability to study on your own to learn how to be adults. Just never have done it. So we sit down and we write the inventory. And they deal with it uh, in a very simple way. Uh, we break it down into life, what I call life period, which is uh, from birth to five is the first period, from six to, to 12 is the second, from 13 to 19 is the third, and from 20 to the present is the fourth period. And I just break it down in those periods because they're logical, what I call life periods. Those are the first five years are the basic learning foundations. Years six through uh, 12 are the, what I call the traumatic years. Those are the years in which 
we compound the learning by uh, impregnating it in our lifestyle. Those are also the painful or traumatic years. We remember a lot of pain from 6 to 12. 13 to 19 are the, the teenage years. Those are the years in which we have one foot in our childhood and another foot in our opportunity to grow up. It is the adolescent years. That's why teenagers are so difficult because there's a part of them that still wants to, to be a child. And there's the other part of them that says, but I have my period and I've grown breasts and I, you know, or the boy says, but I, you know, have hair growing on my face. I'm an adult. And physic physically they're developing into adults, often taller and bigger than their parents. And yet they're, they're still there. They don't want to let go of being taken care of. And I'll tell my kids when I get that age, I know just what it's like. I wish to hell I had you. You can take care of me. I would love it. I would love to say to you, I got a problem, kids. Would you take care of it for me? I've got to be at a lesson tomorrow. I need to get there. I expect you to drop everything and take me there. I would love to have somebody take care of my problems and support me and so forth. So that's where teenagers are. What happened to me and most of us, I assume, as teenagers, is I slipped back and went back into the childhood. I never outgrew it. It was difficult going through puberty at 40. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. You, know, you get pimples and things like that. So we slip back into it, and we never go beyond that. But those years are there. And then there's 19 through uh, the present time in which we deal with how we express that childish, those childish emotions in this grown-up body, how we practice it each day. And each period is usually two or three days, uh, two or three pages, I mean. Um, doesn't take very long. They can write an inventory, a total inventory. We are not looking uh, for a detailed analysis of every single act. While we want you to be thorough, uh, we're not looking for a recapitulation of a diary. Uh, this is not the great American novel uh, or, uh, you, know, you know, War and Peace. Uh, although I have, uh, some people seem to think that the longer it is, the more uh, uh, grandiose they become. It doesn't work that way. The purpose of inventory is to clear away the wreckage of the past. That is, you are the wreckage of the past. It is the present you that has to change, not the past. The past is, you know, the very famous saying, past is prologue, that's all it is. The past is just an introduction to where you are now. You get to see how you were taught to be the way you are. From the inventory, we share it with somebody, hopefully somebody that we uh, uh, care about and love, and uh, uh, I know it's kind of difficult sometimes in small towns to find somebody to share inventory with. Um, like uh, most things in OA, we perverted, and anonymity means advertisement, you know. Whenever you tell somebody, you could be sure it's passed on. And. Uh, <laughs> there is very little anonymity in our program, unfortunately. And, of course, people protect anonymity, but they protect it in the wrong place. 
Uh, you try. I remember once going to New York and, and saying, gee, I'd like to call up some OA people there. And uh, from some fellow in OA from New York says, oh, God, I'll give you their names. Uh, there's Joe and Frank and Mary and Jim and so forth. And I'll say, oh, what's their numbers? Well, I can't give out their numbers. <laughs> or what's their last name? Well, I can't give their last name. Well, how am I going to go and get in touch with them? Well, you go to the Tuesday night meeting and see if there's a guy there by the name of Jim, you know, and so forth. And, and because we were supposed to protect their anonymity. That's not what we're supposed to protect. Of course, he'll tell you everything there is about Jim, you know, and Mary and John and everybody else. They'll tell you, well, you see, Jim, well, he's the guy, he's full of baloney, and he'll tell you this is what he says and this is what he does and everything like that. But we won't tell you his last name, you know. We have to maintain anonymity at any cost. Anyhow, hopefully you can find somebody to share it with. Uh, I usually uh, uh, tell people that when we do inventory that under no circumstances will I ever repeat, sort of like a pledge, they don't ask it to me, but I tell them, will we, they ever re I ever repeat anything they say to me, even to them, unless they request it. I'll never bring it up and say, well, you remember you told me about your mother this, and I'll never bring it up. I think that once they share it, it's my job to keep it quiet unless they decide to bring it up. And I'm supposed to be there not to interject it, because every once in a while they'll read and they'll say, well, aren't you going to say something? You know, like I'm supposed to say something. And usually I have nothing to say. What is there to say to them? What am I supposed to do when they, when they uh, share? Am I supposed to tell them how bad they are? And they'll say uh, something like, well, I'm still, I still have this problem. What should I do? And I'll say, I don't know. And I'll say, well, what good are you? I said, not very good. <laughs> well, what are you supposed to do with my sponsor? I said, listen to you. And that's it. That's it. I'm supposed to listen to you and support you and, 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 and share with you what I do. But I don't know what you, you should do. I don't know what's good for anybody else. I hardly know what's good for me. In fact, I only know what's good for me after I do it. You know, and then I'll say, oh, that's good, or that was a mistake, and that's all. Oh, wait, people have it, so they believe that they have this incredible God-given gift, gifts, and it's reading minds and predicting the future. <laughs> we know all about those things. I know what she thinks. How do you know what she, I don't know what anybody thinks. Well, if I do this, that's going to happen, and I'll say, God, that's wonderful. Who's going to win the race tomorrow? I wish you could tell me that. You could predict the future so wonderfully. You know that if you wear that, or if you don't go home and say this, or if you don't make dinner for your heart, whatever it is, this is going to happen. That's terrific. I just wish I could predict the future like that. And of course we can't predict the future, and we don't know what other people think, and I have no way of doing that, and I have no better advice for anybody than I have for myself, but just to plot along, and make mistakes, and get up the next day and do it again, until you learn what's what works and what doesn't work, hopefully. We then do our sixth step. Sixth step gives us the opportunity to identify, to identify and develop six and seven steps. Uh, the opportunities to identify and develop our natural character traits. The purpose of the, of the sixth and seventh step is not to point out how bad you are, but to develop how good you are. It's not to point out <coughs> all the things you do wrong, but find out the things you can do that are right. What I usually do 
is have her make a list like this from their uh, inventory. <coughs> this is what an inventory looks like. Usually six pages or something like that. And this is uh, what's done. They make a list. And on this side, they put down character defects. And underneath character defects, they put down what character defects are. Character defects are learned behaviors that have outlived their usefulness. Character defects are things you learn to survive, which were probably appropriate at the time you learned them. Certainly to the child, they were appropriate. Compulsive eating was the thing you used to survive. It just has outlived its usefulness. When I was a child, if I didn't lie, I got beaten, so I lied. If I didn't steal, I didn't get it, so I stole. If I didn't eat, I got very little pleasure in life, so I ate. These were the things, the mechanisms I created from what I learned and saw other people do that helped me survive. Without lying and stealing and eating and the other things I did, I could not have survived. The thing is, they worked for me as a child. But what happened to me as a child is not happening to me now, and I'm not a child. But I forgot that. In fact, I became so addicted to that kind of a lifestyle that I forgot why I did it in the first place. I, could, I don't even know why I ate or why I lied. Or I just know generally. But it isn't important. The point is, I learned these character behaviors that, and it's just outlived its usefulness. It's not useful anymore. It doesn't serve the purpose it was designed for. Compulsively eating served the purpose. Just doesn't serve that purpose. I don't even know what the purpose is, but it isn't important. It just doesn't serve that purpose anymore. How do we, when we do that, uh, and they make their list, and I'll say to them, are you willing to let go of all these things? And they'll say, sure, sure. And I'll say, no, no. <laughs> You're willing never to lie again? You're willing always to eat appropriately again? Come on, you're not going to do that. You're going to start at it, maybe. But some of these have really, I mean, they really helped you out a lot. I mean, you know, lying really got you to be something. And if you stop being something what the lie got you, you're going to have to be something which is what you are. I mean, you're going to have to be you instead of the facade. I mean, just think about it. You're willing to, really willing to give up lying? Well, I got to. No, you don't. You don't have to give up any of these things. There's no got to's in this program. The only thing is, if you don't do it, you're not going to get the result. If you want the result, then this is what you have to choose to do. Because if you got to, you're going to get even. And that's by failing. So if you want to, fine. So we go through this. And I'll say, well, how are you going to stop this? You know, how are you going to stop it? Uh, we talked about where we're keeping our eye. Is your eye going to be on stopping this? Is that where you want to keep your life? Stopping lying, stopping cheating, stopping stealing? You can't stop that. That's the same thing as dieting or food plans or anything. When you're working at not lying, you're dieting on lying. When you're working on not stealing, you're dieting on stealing. And that's where your whole life still is. <coughs> so how do you stop lying? Well, on this side, we put down what I call character affects. The way you stop lying is not to work at not lying, but you develop truthfulness. 
The way to stop stealing is to work on honesty. The way uh, to, to, to uh, stop overeating is to eat naturally. The way to, do, to, to deal with resentment is to work on acceptance. The way to deal with anger is to work on love. It's always. So our program is not negative. It's not not do this. It's do this. This is what there is to do. Not only that, but this is unnatural. This is what you learn, but this is what you really have the God-given capacity for. You have the capacity for honesty and truthfulness and love and caring and giving and, and sharing. These are God's, give, God's natural capacity. The other is a capacity, too. It's the capacity of evil. This is the capacity of evil, these character defects. And you have also the capacity of good. It's the choice between my room and I pull out the phone book and I look up names of people and uh, I have over the years found several people I have to make amends to and the idea is that uh, those people that I have to make amends to uh, are, are all around and I, it is a lifelong endeavor to find them and I'll probably never, never finish it that's okay as long as I'm willing to make the effort. But then there are those people who we know. We know where they are. It doesn't injure them or others to make the amends. So what do we do when we make amends? Why do we go to them to make amends? Well, just think of it. What other people, what other people are there in this world that would make amends, that would go up and confront somebody on purpose knowing that that person isn't going to like them? Who else would do something like that except us? We are asked on purpose to meet people who we know are not going to like us, who are very often going to hate us, hated us before, but certainly going to hate us more now because they've avoided, just the same, we've, same way we've avoided, dealing with this subject. And we're asked to meet these people and confront them and talk to them about the very thing that we've both been avoiding all these years. You think they're going to like it? Or somebody's been sitting around with that harboring that anger about who stole that uh, typewriter from the office, and you come back and say, you remember 10 years ago you were looking to see who this typewriter was, and I said it was probably that girl that quit two weeks ago. And I, well, it was me, and I want to pay you back. You think they're going to like you? They're going to say, oh, God, you're such a wonderful person to come forth. You know, I think I'll promote you. They're not going to like that. They're going to be angry at you. So the purpose of inventory is to be able to confront the people, the very people who we know are not going to like us. Inventory, uh, I mean amends. The, the amends, in making amends, we cleanse ourselves of the fear of other people. It is such a cleansing experience. And anybody who's ever made amends knows what I mean. And you just walk away from there. And somehow, 
You almost feel better the worse they feel. I mean, the, the more angry they are, the less understanding they are, the better you feel. It's like you've got this secret going that you can't even share. And I've had people, uh, you know, come back to me afterward and say, well, how did you, you feel when you made, ex made that amends and the smile crosses their face? And they'll say, boy, was he angry at me. I knew he was going to be angry. He didn't understand at all, you know. And, and, and I felt terrific about it. I don't have to deal with him anymore. I don't have to worry about what he's going to say or do, or anybody. We can confront angry people the rest of our lives. We can finally deal with the parents in our head and get rid of them. We can finally learn to, uh, to live a different life. I know a lot of these, this approach to the steps maybe is a little different than you, than you might have dealt with before. Well, what I'm sharing with you is a little strange, but uh, we all see things differently. You know, there's a story about uh, <coughs> an old folk tale. Actually, it's an Indian folk tale about, it's called The Six Blind Men and the Elephant. And it's about these men who uh, are asked to describe an elephant, and they're all blind. And of course, the one blind man feels a leg, and he says, why, elephants are like tree trunks. And the other one feels a tail, and they say, why, elephants are like snakes. And one feels the trunk and says, why, elephants are, are like uh, branches of uh, trees. And one feels the, the ears. And they say, why, elephants are like parchment. One feels the body, and elephants are like buildings, and, and so on. And, uh, and, of course, they're all right. Because they only see what there is to see in their context. They can only see that. And we've only seen life in context of the way we've seen it. We've had lots of teachers along the way. And uh, I was willing to uh, find new teachers. I could no longer go on just what everybody else was saying and everybody else was doing, not in, not in my life nor in this program. I couldn't accept the fact that uh, I was supposed to be sick, I wanted to be well. And when, and I remember one of those things that they dealt with was uh, uh, the promises of the program. I, uh, I was always amazed at each meeting they would read you the promises of the program. And one day I was listening to the promises, the nine step promises, and I heard it and I started to laugh to myself. And, and I shared it, I remember that week, I was, and I was doing a retreat, and I shared the nine-step promises, and I said to them, as I say to you, that when you've heard those nine-step promises, you want to hear what those promises are? Let's listen to them. <coughs> it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, that is, the turning of ourselves over to God, turning our will and life over to God as steps four through nine. If we are painstaking about this, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going, and here's what we're going to be amazed about. Here's the promises. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. 
Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. What's God doing? What do the promises tell us? Remember I said in the beginning that the only thing that's going to change is that you're going to begin to think and feel differently. That's all we ever promise you. There is no behavioral change promised you in this program. There is nothing in this book that shows you that you're going to change your behavior. And what do the promises say you're going to get at this time? We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. It doesn't say you're going to get freedom and happiness. You're going to know it. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. It doesn't say we're going to get serenity and peace. We're going to comprehend it and we're going to know it. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. It doesn't say how our, that our experience will benefit anybody. It just says we will see how it can. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will be as useless as ever. We will just won't feel that way. <laughs> we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. We're just going to have interest in those things. doesn't say we're not going to be as selfish as we were. Our whole at attitude and outlook upon life will change. Life is not going to change, just our attitude and outlook will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We'll be as poor as ever. We just won't be afraid of it. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. It doesn't say we're going to handle it any better than we did. We're going to be as terrible as we were. We just know intuitively we'll know how to do it. doesn't say we're going to do it. Because the promises have been met. All that was promised us in the beginning is that you will know certain things. You will comprehend certain things. You will realize certain things. But it doesn't say you're going to change one ounce of behavior. That's what the promises are. You will begin to think and feel differently. That's all it tells us. That's all that was promised us. We will comprehend this. We will know that. We will not regret this anymore. Uh, we will uh, see this. We will feel that. We will lose interest in this. We will have a new attitude and outlook. Fear will leave us. We will intuitively know. But nothing is going to change except the way we feel and think. That's going to begin to change. And that's all that was ever promised to us. The promise was in the beginning, God will restore you to sanity. How does he restore you to sanity? You begin to think and feel different. You don't change your behavior. A recovered person, as defined by this program, is one who is restored to sanity. That's what it told us in the second step. And it now tells us that. It says, as we go into the 10th, 11th, and 12th step, it says, for this time, sanity will have returned. What is sanity? It says, you will, you will seldom be interested. It doesn't say you never will be. If tempted, you will recoil from it, but it doesn't say you ever, you're not going to do it. You will react sanely and normally, and you will see that this has happened automatically. You will react to things sanely and normally. How do normal and sane people react to obesity? 
but I've got to eat less and exercise more. And I now have the power to do it. I never did. How do I get to have people love me? I become lovable. I now have the power to do that. How do I react to life? I react differently. Now I have the power to do it. Am I self-seeking? A lot less. I'm a little bit more secure. I know how to do these things. I have information now, and I have begun to utilize it. That's what a sane person does. If I tell you, look at, uh, you've got a job here, and you've been a terrific secretary, and if you want to stay, you've got to learn how to use a computer, a word processor, because typewriters are really antiquated in our field. And in order to compete, you've got to learn how to use a computer. So I send you to a class, and you come back, and I say, have you learned? You say, well, I've learned, but I'm not good at it. It's going to take me a long time. And of course it will. And do I expect you, having taken that class, to be perfect in word processing the day you come back? Absolutely not. About the only thing you're perfect at is beginning. Well, that's us. We've begun a new life. We've taken a new class called OA1A. And it's lessons we've learned. Somebody like me and somebody in a big book and a dozen speakers you hear and a sponsor you have has shared with you, we're teachers. That's all. We teach from our experience by sharing. The only way we know how is to teach. And, and the question is whether you learn or not. That's up to you. You take these lessons from the big book and you begin to learn. And a recovered person is a new student who's taken the basic class and now to perfect the science of recovery, they go out in the world out there. And it takes them years, a lifetime. And they find out that what they learned, they always had inside them anyhow. They learned nothing they didn't know. A 10-step tells us that we're supposed to seek through, through continuous inventory. And I, I've always taken that to mean at least on a daily basis. And I usually carry around with me sometimes in my jacket pocket, my briefcase, or my, something like that, a little, little tiny pen. I write things down during the day. Thoughts that come to me, things that bother me, stuff I have to do that day to make an amends, to correct something, a feeling I have that I don't have time to really get in, whatever it is. And I'll sit down and I'll spend 10 or 15 minutes at the end of the day going over it. And then for years in the beginning, I would sit down and write a little inventory every day. And that's what I think people should do every day. Sit down and write it. And to go over it. And to deal with it. And to share it. Because it's no good to keep it to ourselves. This is not a secret society where we keep things from ourselves. And when we do that, and we continue to make amends as they happen, we, we find out that it's just so easy, and pretty soon we get to the point where there's nothing to make amends about very much. Because we stop ourselves in the middle of whatever it is we're going on. And that takes us to the 11th step, which says we seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and power to carry that. We pray for knowledge and power. What is God's will for us? Well, there's a... 
And that takes us to the 11th step, which says we seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry that. We pray for knowledge and power. What is God's will for us? Well, there's a, a prayer that says it all. Or not, uh, not really a prayer. It's a, a saying from the Bible in the book of Micah. And it's repeated over and over, both in the New Testament and Old Testament, these very same lines, only in a different context. Of course, the writer in the book of Micah in the Bible says, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and how myself before God on high? What does God want of me, he says. And he says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I owe my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Will God accept me if I have abstinence or lose 50 pounds? What does God want of me? And his answer is, has been told thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord does require of thee, only to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And walking with God is repeated at least 50 times in the Bible, and I've come across maybe more. We are asked to walk with God, to be with him, to join with him, not to transcend him or he transcends us. We are to be at one with God. His will for us is to be just, to be fair and honest with people, to love mercy, to give to people, and to walk humbly, to be with him, to be as God. That's what, that, that's what his will for us is. And that's what steps four through nine do. They get us to the point where we can do those things. And we do 10 and 11. 10 is to see our practical, practical approach to things. And 11 is to ask God for the strength and courage to do the things that has to be done. You know, God is... Uh, the, the purpose of prayer is not prayer. The purpose of prayer is not asking God for something. The purpose of prayer is to partake of God. Prayer is not words, it's an experience. The issue of prayer is not prayer, the issue of prayer is God. Man may spend hours meditating about himself or be stirred by the deepest sympathy for his fellow man, but no prayer will come to pass. Prayer comes to pass in a complete turning of the heart towards God and towards his power. It is the total disregard of personal concern. Meditation is an opportunity to get in touch with yourself. Prayer is an opportunity to get in touch with God. There's a big difference. Prayer, I want to be totally in tune with what Bill is. In prayer, I want to be totally in tune with what God is. And they're totally different. The absence, prayer is the absence of self-centered thoughts. Feelings becomes prayer in the moment in which we forget ourselves and become aware of God. Prayer is an invitation to God to intervene in our lives in the only way God intervenes in our lives. We ask for strength and courage, and we get strength and courage. We ask to be relieved of fear, and we are relieved of fear. God's 
gifts are not for sale. He is not a used car salesman in which we pray and bargain and figure out what we have to give to get what we want. It doesn't work that way. God is only there for us when we seek him. And the only thing he gives us is power. Power to overcome the otherwise unachievable. Power to live and love people that we, don't, we never should have in the first place. Power to understand people who have hurt us. Power to transcend a lifetime of indoctrination. It's interesting how we could love somebody else's mother and not our own. We can look at some man in OA and go up and put our arms around him, and we can't do it to our own fathers and husbands and sons. We can do things to strangers. Why? Because we have a history, and we are unwilling to transcend the history. Try it one day. Just go up to your mother, your father, somebody who you have such difficulty with. Nothing said. Don't have to even say, I love you. Just go up and do what you would do with a stranger in OA. Just put your arm around him and say, I want to give you a hug. And see what happens. Makes no difference what they do. What you do and what you feel. The ability to do that and walk away from it knowing that you've touched them and they're not even willing to admit it sometimes. Prayer is not a search for what's out there. It is a search for what's in. Prayer is, in, in its original Aramaic form, is what we call a reflective verb. It means to look within, not to search without. Eleanor Roosevelt once said that uh, every time you meet a situation, though you think at the time it is impossible, and you go through the tortures of the dam, once you have met it, live through it, you find that forever you are freer than you were before. And the power to do that, the power to find that ability, comes from within, from prayer. The, uh, the willingness to share with others and to go to find that uh, love and compassion that have not existed before in our lives comes only from prayer. Prayer is the search within from the God without. Prayer is the opportunity to divest yourself from everything and become at one with God. Prayer is a beseeching of God to come within you and allow you to be as Him. Prayer gives us lots of things. It gives us the opportunity to feel a certain way, to be with people. We pray for people to come into our lives and people do come into our lives. We find that we have the ability to do things that we never saw, thought we could have before. In the book of Isaiah, it says, But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We should, those that wait for the Lord, those that seek God, from within and from without, they too will find God. Prayer is probably the most useful tool I have found in this program. And once we do that, we find that as a measurement of everyday living. It takes us to our 12th step, which says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. A spiritual awakening. 
Remember the term spiritual was defined as a new way of thinking and feeling. So it says, having awakened to a new way of thinking and feeling. It doesn't say that you feel completely different and think completely different. It means, just means you've awakened to it. You've learned how to do those things. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, it doesn't say a result, it doesn't say having sobriety as a result of these steps, having abstinence as a result of these steps, losing weight as a result of these steps, stopping drinking as a result of these steps, is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the only promise we ever made. That you will awaken to a new way of thinking and feeling. The term spiritual means a new way of thinking and feeling. And when one awakens to it, they begin. That's why people who go through the steps just begin. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we carry this message to others. How do we carry this message to others? By what we say, sometimes. By the service we do, sometimes. But in the long run, the messenger is the message. You are the program. Not what you say or do as much as what you are. Not how much you weigh in comparison to what you used to weigh, but what you are today in comparison to nothing. You either are nice and good and caring and comforting and compassionate and powerful, or you're not. And you all are a little bit of that more today than you ever were. You cannot be around this program and not be more powerful, more loving, more caring, more giving than the day you walked in, and more understanding of yourself. You are the message. And there's nothing you can say or do that's greater than just being there for some newcomer, just to be there and listen to them. And that's what I call the sponsor's motto, is to be there and listen. You're not there to tell them how to run their lives. You haven't done such a good job with yours. You're there to share if they ask you, not what they should do, but what you should do, or you would do in that situation, or have done. But more important than that, you're there to support them in whatever they do. My usual answer to somebody who says, what should I do, is I don't know, but understand that God will help you. And they'll say, but I pray and I still don't know what to do. I said, it doesn't make any difference because God has given you the power to choose and that, that includes the ability to choose wrong. And understand, you will choose wrong very often, hopefully less and less. But God's not going to beat you up, so why should you? If you are in God's image, how what right have you to beat up you and to destroy you and to disfigure you? And we carry this message in all our affairs. That means if we don't live it out there, we're not living it anywhere. OA is not a refuge. It is a pit stop. It's a refueling. It's a, an, uh, a class we go to. It's an opportunity to allow us to live out there, because if we can't live out there, then it's all a waste of time. So. The journey is ending with the beginning of a new journey. I know some of you come here with a lot of expectations, expecting me to give you some magic words, some kind of a, of a uh, magic man. It's like the story of my favorite story I tell about this is uh, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, people came to uh, 
the Wizard of Oz to help them. You remember the story, Dorothy uh, found herself in the land of Oz, and she was told that if she followed the yellow brick road, God would, uh, that at the end of the yellow brick road, there was a wizard who would solve her problem. And she starts down the road, and she meets the, the straw man and who says that he has no uh, brain. And she said, well, I have this problem. I have to get home to Kansas. Anybody who wants to go home to Kansas does have a problem. <laughs> uh, equal time for the Ohio people, you know. <laughs> and uh, the she says to uh, the straw man, well, if, if the wizard is supposed to help me get home, maybe he can solve your problem, give you a brain. So he goes along and they meet the Tin Man. And the Tin Man says, I don't have any heart. And Dorothy says, well, I was told if I follow this yellow brick road and go to the land of Oz, the wizard there will solve my problem and get me home. And he's coming along to hope that the wizard will solve his problem and give him a brain. Why don't you come along? Maybe the wizard will solve your problem and give you a heart. So the Tin Man goes along and all of a sudden they meet the... Uh, uh, the cowardly lion, and he says, I have no courage. What good is a lion without courage? I have this terrible problem. And uh, <coughs> Dorothy says, well, why don't you come with us? We're going to go follow this yellow brick road, and hopefully the wizard will solve my problem and get me home to Kansas and solve his problem and give him a brain and solve his problem and give him a heart. Maybe he'll solve your problem and give you courage. So they go along, and all of a sudden, do they listen to directions? They were told to follow the yellow brick road. No, they found an easier, softer way. They found a shortcut across the field, right? <laughs> and that, it's only when they leave the yellow brick road and go across the field does the wicked witch come after them, see? <laughs> well, of course, they fight the wicked witch, and they have, uh, they defeat her, and they get back on the yellow brick road, and they come to the land of Oz, which are, have all these strange little munchkins there, who are just so strange and weird, just happy, you know. And uh, they finally find this wizard, and what do they find out? They tell him, they said, a wizard's a fraud. He said, look at you. We came for you to solve our problems, and you're nothing but another man with this big amplifying system. You're a phony. You're a fraud. And they're so angry at him. And Dorothy starts to cry and get mad at him. And he says, you're right. I am a phony. I'm a fraud. I can tell you nothing. I can give you nothing. I can do nothing for you. I really am just nothing. And then he turns to the straw man. He says, but look what happened in your journey to have me take care of your problem. What did you find? You always had a brain. In your journey to have me give you a brain, you found out that what you wanted, you always had. And to the Tin Man, he says, you wanted me to give you a heart. And in your search to find me to give you what you want, you found that you always had a heart. And to the Lion, he says, you wanted me to give you courage. And isn't it you that showed all the courage and bravery when the Wicked Witch came when you defended Dorothy? In your journey, on the way to have me take care of you, you found out that what you wanted, you've always had inside you. I am a fraud and phony. And to Dar and Dorothy says, well, what about me? I want to go home. He says, you could have always gone there any time you wanted to. All you got to do is close your eyes and click your heels and you'll be wherever you want to. The choice is with you. And that works for us here, too. You come here and you seek me or somebody else or the book, whatever it is. The answers to your problem and the answers have always been within you. The fact that you're here and willing 